Welcome to a very special episode of the Avenus History Podcast. Let me begin by saying that I consult a lot of resources as I research each episode. Yes, I do research. Stop laughing. Anyway, this episode is special because I get to talk about one of the books I've read for research. It's called Protest in Progress, Black Seventh-day Adventist Leadership and the Push for Parity. It's by Calvin Rock, but more on him in a minute. Andrews University Press, which published the book, has graciously sponsored this episode. So shout out to AU Press. And they wanted me to talk about this book, which I'm genuinely happy to do. Now, full disclosure, while AU Press is sponsoring this episode, my opinions in this episode are my opinions, okay? They're not making me say anything. And if I say anything stupid, please don't blame them for that. Now, the reason why I'm happy to talk about protest in progress is the fact that it touches on a history most Adventists aren't aware of. Many of you probably know that in America, Adventists have a layer of church structure called regional conferences. They were made by and for black Adventists. Now, I know plenty of white Adventists who are embarrassed by this open little secret. They say things like, it's the 21st century for crying out loud. How can we still have these regional conferences? Now, when someone asked me, Matthew, what will it take to reunite our conference system? At one point in my life, I would have replied, it will probably take CNN finding out about it and shaming our church until we have the will to reunite. That we may have one conference system. Why? Because it just looks like segregation to people. It looks like we're trying to keep Adventism racially separated. Now, if you go talk to a white state conference official, they will usually throw up their hands and say, it's not our fault. Black Adventists want separate conferences. What can you do? And so, the white Adventist limps home, wishing for the sake of unity in Christ that we could all be one. And if you've been one of those Adventists who've wondered why we have separate conferences, if you felt like you've never gotten a straight answer out of your pastor, then this book is for you. Calvin Rock makes the case for why we need separate conferences. So we're going to dip our toe into the water here. If you are really interested in this subject, if you want to have more than just a a useful knowledge of this topic, then go buy Protest and Progress. I'll even give you a discount at the end of this episode so that you can get it cheaper than you'll find it on Amazon. Now, many white Adventists are probably going to get hung up on the word protest. It's hard for us to associate the word protest with church. Now, we know our church isn't perfect, blah, 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 But we cannot imagine protest as the right way to change anything. In many of our minds, the church is the body of Christ, this spiritual, mystical, holy community. But the word protest is anchored in our imaginations by scenes of angry people yelling and marching and people demanding things. So if the word church sounds spiritual and patient, then the word protest seems very human, and very impatient. All I will ask of you is that you listen. For some of you, this is a hard history to digest because it's not your history, because it's not the mainstream history you grew up hearing. 
but the history of black Seventh-day Adventists is Adventist history. I know some of us prefer sacred history. We want to talk about believers weeping in Bible study, visions in a cornfield, and just-in-time answers to prayer. And if you want that kind of history, then go buy something like Pathways of the Pioneers. It's a dramatized CD set you can get at your local Adventist book center. I love Pathways of the Pioneers. It's great. But if you're listening to this podcast, which I believe you're doing right now, then you'll know that that's not the kind of history we do. Yes, there were answers to prayer in our story. There were miracles in our story. But our story is also about committee meetings and close votes. It's about people praying and then doing the best they can. So if you listen to this podcast, you'll understand protest and progress. You'll understand that sometimes change only comes when the powers that be are confronted. This book is about a people who felt they needed to confront church leaders over and over and over through the decades. That's the story of 1888, after all, right? When Ellen White and Jones and Wagner accomplished what they did by stubbornly proclaiming their message to church leaders and refusing to back down, with Ellen White calling on several leaders to repent publicly. If you believe that's how God chose to work in 1888, one must allow that God sometimes chooses to work that way. So let's not suddenly become pious and pretend we cannot understand why some people might have to protest in order to make some progress. Now, speaking of progress, let's make some. If you've never heard the name Calvin B. Rock, then here's one thing you should know. Calvin Rock is a legend. He's been around forever and has served in just about every role. His grandmother was among the first to attend Oakwood University in 1896. Rock has served as a pastor, as a general conference vice president, as a teacher, as an evangelist. He's an author, of course. He was president of Oakwood University. I mean, you name it. He's earned two doctoral degrees from Vanderbilt and was even born on July 4th. Can't even get any more American than that. When Calvin Rock talks about black Adventist history, he's telling us his story. He's telling us a story that he was an instrumental part of. He was present, in fact, in many of the historical events he narrates in this book. Now, speaking of this book, the book is organized into three parts. Part one talks about four major protest movements in black Adventist history. It began with a push for a voice at the table, a seat at the table. Second, there was a push for colored conferences. Third, there was a push for black unions. And finally, there was a push for a better retirement system. That's part one. Part two features Rock's thoughts about what this history should mean for us today, right? Why we still need, in his opinion, regional conferences. Why we still need a separate retirement system, and so on. In part three, the final part, Rock helpfully includes a bunch of primary sources, mostly letters which he references through the book. Okay, all of that is fine, Matthew, but what is this book about? What is the author's point? Why should I read this book? What is it that he wants me to wrestle with? What's the story he's telling? Here, my friends, is Rock's underlying narrative. It goes like this. In the 19th century, Ellen White stood strong for ending slavery and stood strong against racism in the church. In the 20th century, 
the church embraced racial discrimination, forcing black Adventists to pursue semi-independence for themselves within the church. Okay, that's his story in a nutshell. It's basically the story of the fall. We had this ideal, we had this vision for racial harmony, and we have fallen from that. We've compromised with culture after Ellen White's death. And as a result, black Adventists have had to pursue semi-independence for themselves within the church. In part one, Calvin Rock is answering these two major questions. Question number one, why did the Seventh-day Adventist church change on the race issue? And the second question, why did black Adventists feel the need to pursue semi-independence in the ways that they did? In part two, Rock is explaining why he thinks African-American Adventists still need semi-independence. By semi-independence, I mean things like regional conferences and a separate retirement plan and those sort of things. So if independence is like moving out and buying a house across town, then semi-independence is like living in the loft above your parents' garage. You're still technically living at home, but you can live your own schedule. Anyway, so let's get in. I just want to talk a little bit about Rock's history of black Adventism and the story that he is telling. I just want to flesh that out a little bit more in this episode, and then we'll wrap it up with some lessons I think that we can walk away with, okay? So I'm not spoiling the whole book for you. I'm not giving it all away. If you really want the gritty, awesome details, then you're going to have to go get the book. But I want to talk about the story that Rock is talking about in the book, if that makes sense. So here's where I want to begin. Topic sentence. The story of black Adventism in the 20th century is really about what Ellen White meant. In 1891, Ellen White chastised an Adventist congregation for being racist. The congregation was refusing to let black Adventists worship with them, among other things. Ellen White then, that same year, chastised the general conference session delegates for looking down on black people. Four years later, 1895, Ellen White seemed to change. She recognized that you couldn't have blacks and whites worshiping together in a large part of the country because it was dangerous. The ideal was that everyone comes together, but the practical reality meant that both races needed to worship separately. Ellen White said, quote, let them understand that this plan is to be followed until the Lord shows us a better way, end quote. So, Ellen White didn't want the practical reality, the plan, to remain the reality forever. She didn't know how long we should keep worshiping separately, keep accommodating the reality of racism in America. She only said that someday the Lord would show us a better way. Now, Rock notes with some wit that this until the Lord shows us a better way line came to be interpreted by church leaders as the second coming. Now, that's obviously an exaggeration, okay? But I think you get his point. So, the first protest Rock talks about is this desire for black representation in the church, in church leadership specifically. It's a desire for black pastors and black Adventists and black Bible workers not to be managed by white leaders who know very little about what black people are going through. The Negro Department was created in 1909, of course, we've talked about that, but it was led by white people for its first 10 years. 
And even when the first black president took the helm of the department, it turns out he wasn't given much power. He couldn't even work at the General Conference headquarters in Washington, D.C. He had to work out of his house in Detroit, where he ended up, as Rock points out, working himself to death. Now, Rock goes on to talk about a protest for colored conferences and a protest for black unions. But all three of these protests are, are basically the same. It's a desire for a seat at the table. It's a desire to be in the room where it happens. If you watched Hamilton or listened to Hamilton. This was vital because black Adventists were not allowed at most Adventist hospitals, most Adventist schools, or to be able to worship together in many Adventist churches. Black Adventists were told to go build their own churches and to do so without any authority at the conference or union level, at least at first. And I can only imagine that this was an incredibly painful, incredibly humiliating situation to be in. I can only imagine it felt like being friend-zoned by your own church, like the church wants you but keeps you at arm's length. And then when you talk about leaving the church and hanging out with this other girl, to mix my metaphors, the Adventist girl, the church says, no, don't you love me? Come on, we have a good thing going on. Sending all these mixed signals, it's confusing, it's frustrating. Now, Rock includes letters at the end of the book of Black Adventists applying to go to two Adventist universities and being rejected once the schools find out that the applicants are black. And the first of these letters really exemplifies this whole friend zone thing. And if you don't know what it means to be friend zoned, Google it. Anyways, in this first letter, the, the college president responds with two paragraphs. The whole letter is two paragraphs. In one paragraph, he says, basically, sorry, you never told me you were black. You should have told us that in your application. We don't receive black students at this school. Okay. And then in the other paragraph, the president says, quote, I am sending you a catalog giving full information in regard to our school, end quote. Wait, 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 wait. So you're sending me a course catalog to see what classes you offer and what degrees you give out, and then also telling me that I cannot attend because I'm black? Except the president never explicitly said that the kid couldn't attend. What he actually said was, and I want to quote this so I get his words Precisely. What he actually said was, quote, it is not our policy generally, end quote, to receive black students and that they only educate black students for, quote, some very special reason, end quote. Well, what is that special reason? What is the exception? Is it written down somewhere? No, because what letters like these do is enable the university to say, we don't ban black people from coming here. There's no policy that says they cannot come. Do you see how this game works? I wrote down in the margin of my book that after Ellen White died, American Adventism lost its social daring. The church became afraid of resisting the cultural racism dominating America. Calvin Rock sums up America at this time when he says that Southern white people didn't care how close black people got to them. I mean, you can still cook our food, watch our children, just don't get too big. Northern whites said, we don't care how big you get, just don't get too close. And I, I fully believe that white Adventist leaders wanted black people to thrive in the church, okay? But the church as a whole was paralyzed by this fear, fear of being seen to cross the colored line. 
fear of allowing black Adventists to get too close to the halls of power. Not because the church was racist as a whole, not because we had some dehumanizing view of, of our black brothers and sisters, but because of how it would look, because of the cultural reaction to placing black people in leadership. We were afraid, like those in the north, of allowing them to get too close. Yet what happened in the decades after Ellen White accepted that practical policy of separate worship is it went from being a practical policy, an expedient policy, to being institutionalized. We've, we've gone from the wisdom of worshiping separately in our churches in the South in 1895, primarily the South, to becoming separate in, in all of our churches in 1930. That policy in the South in 1895 became having separate hospitals, separate schools. And it's hard to imagine that Ellen White would have supported her policy being taken so, so far. I mean, at some point, you just feel like you cross a line. At some point, you're not just trying to work around racism in order to get things done, which, which I kind of get, okay? At some point, you become complicit in it. At some point, you're part of the problem, and it's a slippery, slippery slope. And yet, during these decades, you're going to find article after article in Adventist publications weeping and wailing about worldliness creeping into the church. And by worldliness, of course, the authors of these articles meant things like fashion and entertainment. They never saw the church's fear of racist culture as worldliness creeping into the church. After all, racially segregating cafeterias and bathrooms and drinking fountains isn't a church idea. That idea came from the world and entered the church. We would like to assume that Adventists were all basically anti-racist, but they lived in a racist culture, and so they kind of had to just keep their heads down for a few decades until things changed. But Rock notes an article in the Atlanta Constitution in 1948 with the headline, Adventist Upholds Racial Segregation. Apparently, a pastor was quoted as preaching that segregation, right, the separateness of the races, was, quote, originated by God and set forth in the Bible, end quote. Now, if there was a strong anti-racist culture in the church, I cannot help but think that pastor would be in trouble for saying that publicly. Maybe he wouldn't have been fired, but somebody would have written him a letter. And maybe they did, and we just don't have it. I don't know. It's easy to write off this guy as one bad apple. But when a black journalist tried in vain to find an official Adventist position on the race issue, he was, he found nothing. He found nothing. So what he did was he saw this Adventist preacher preach this, and he said, well, that, that can't be what that church believes. So he's, he's writing the church leaders, tell me, do you guys affirm what this pastor said, or is he an aberration? Is he that bad apple? And there was nothing. There was no official policy stating what Adventists believed on the race issue. In fact, we were one of the last churches in this country. Rock points this out. We were one of the last churches in this country 
to define our position on the issue. Okay, it took us into the 1960s before we, before we formally declared where we stand. In the 1890s, Ellen White articulated an ideal we were trying to get to and the practical policy which we were to adopt in order to get around the roadblocks in our pursuit of the ideal of racial unity, of racial harmony. Fifty years after that, the ideal was on life support. Okay, we got to a point where the culture began to move away from racism, away from segregation, slowly but surely began to move away from these things. And Adventism didn't. Adventism stood stoically and stubbornly by this practical policy, which it had expanded and enlarged based on Ellen White's counsel in 1895. Can you imagine being a black Seventh-day Adventist in those days and reading an editorial in the review bemoaning how worldly music is corrupting our church? As if music was the salient issue of worldliness in the church. It would seem so surreal as if the rest of the church, as if the leaders of the church are just living on a completely different planet because they didn't see how much the church had bought into the cultures, into the world's racist ideas. Because they didn't see how the world was starting to believe and behave better than the church future General Conference Vice President named Dixon came closest, perhaps, to a moment of awareness of what many a black Adventist must have recognized as a stunning hypocrisy. Dixon wrote an article called, What is Worldliness? And it's a good article, okay? Worldliness, Dixon wrote, is, is more than just a list of things you shouldn't do, okay? He was aware that maybe we're using this word just to label a bunch of things, right? It's just a way of, uh, of introducing a poison pill. Oh, you like wearing that? Well, that's worldly. And boom, once you've nailed, once you've, once you've stitched that label onto that practice, you've sunk that ship. It's gone. You, know, you can't do that anymore. That music is worldly. That thing you're doing is worldly. It was a way of just kind of torpedoing whatever practice, whatever trend the church didn't like. And so, so for Dixon, worldliness has got to be more than just labels, more than just a list of things you shouldn't be doing. To quote him, he says that worldliness, quote, is a life without high callings, a life devoid of lofty ideals. As someone has stated it, it is a gaze always horizontal, never vertical. Its motto is forward, never upward. Its goal is success, not holiness, end quote. On the issue of race, the Adventist church had become a church without lofty ideals. It was certainly oriented horizontally, that is, paying attention to the culture rather than vertically paying attention to God. If Ellen White had said, this is a practical policy until the Lord shows us a better way, then it seems 
very much like church leaders had stopped asking God to show us a better way. What made it more complicated was that if you were a black Adventist in this era, you were a citizen of two worlds. You had the church you loved, which wanted you but didn't really prioritize you, and then you also had the black community, which transcended denominational lines and often pushed for radical social change for understandable reasons. You may remember from our Color Line episodes that Louis Sheaf was a super popular preacher among the black community in Washington, D.C., and that this caused Judson S. Washburn to go crazy because many white Adventists saw speaking at these Sunday churches as spiritually dangerous, right? You still have this kind of um, apocalyptic mindset that these Sunday churches are some, someday going to persecute us, they're someday going to um, oppress us, and when, when we see some of our own preachers being praised and celebrated in Sunday churches, well, it must be because you're selling out. So the more you participate in your black community, the more you're seen with radical reformers like Jesse Jackson, the more certain white leaders are going to question your loyalty to Adventism. And within the black community was an increasingly strong desire to evaluate organizations solely in terms of how they evaluate you. So black Adventists often had to sheepishly tell others in the black community that their church isn't super friendly to the cause of racial equality. And one of those issues, one of the Adventist black leaders explained to somebody else in the black community on matters of race, Seventh-day Adventism is retarded. Now... That's not politically correct anymore, okay? But that's the kind of thing a loyal, believing, Seventh-day Adventist black person, that's, that's what they would have to explain to their brothers and sisters in the black community, and it was embarrassing. Many in the black community would look to those Adventists and say, why do you still belong to that church? They're the problem, not the solution. So if you're a black Adventist, you're caught in between a church that sometimes questions your loyalty and a black community that sometimes questions your desire for equality, your desire for justice. Two identities, sometimes at odds. And I don't know where there's a good place to say this in this episode, so I'm, I'm just going to say it now. I'm a white guy. I am, I am coming at this topic from the outside. So if I, if I tend to oversimplify something, if I overlook something, please forgive me because this, this is my Adventist history, but this is not my, my racial history. This is not a part of that. So I'm, I'm coming at this from the outside. I'm trying to learn and do my best to explain this. So if you are a person of color, be patient with me. If I use the wrong words, if I don't perhaps always catch the precise nuance, I'm just trying to tell this story to help others understand. And I think we should also understand all of this that we've just been talking about as the context in which black Adventists asked to form their own conferences. Because with their own conferences, 
there would be much less conflict between these two identities. They could move pastors as they needed to. They could plan their own evangelism. Okay, They could report to the black community that we have been empowered and entrusted by our own people. And that can be a point of pride. Okay, That can be a point of... I don't, I don't mean pride in a bad sense, you understand. But just, just pride is, as in we are beloved in our own faith community. We're proud of our church. So understand that as the context for the quest for regional conferences. The quest for, as they called them back then, colored conferences. Now, th this road was long. I mentioned it took 10 years before a black person was in charge of the Negro Department at the North American Division. It took nearly 40 years before a black person was placed in charge of Oakwood College. 40 years since its founding. And it took nearly 50 years for black conferences to be adopted, since Charles Kinney recommended them in 1889. 1889, guys! It took until 1944 before they were established. Now, now, compare those timelines, okay, 10 years, 40 years, 50 years. Compare those timelines to the fact that Adventists came out of the despair of disappointment. They came out of the chaos of the 1844 movement. They, they came from there to organizing the first conference in 16 years. There was resistance toward these black Adventist ideas every step of the way, even as late as 1963, okay, with, with several black and white Adventists involved in Martin Luther King's March on Washington, okay, Rock points out that a review editor blasted religious participation in the event as a violation of church and state, right? He has this, this, this very traditional Adventist view that our job is to reform people, our job is not to reform cultures. Our job is not to reform governments. Our job is to reform people. Right? That was, that was his mindset. So we as Christians do not need to be involved in political movements. Another black Adventist leader was told in public that he needed to burn his library because the pro Equality views in some of his books were seen as too radical. Imagine being told that in public. You need to go burn your books. In the end, it might be said that cultural changes in America cause the church to remember the ideal. Sometimes we talk about that Niburian model Christ transforming culture, Christ over culture, Christ against culture, all of those things. Sometimes... We can talk about culture transforming the church, not in a bad way, but sometimes the culture seems to get ahead of us in a good way. But it wasn't easy. Some Adventists listening might be thinking of people like Charles Bradford. If you know a little bit of your, your history, you know he's the, the first and only black man elected president of the North American Division. It happened in, in 1979. Doesn't his election show change? I found the story of Bradford's election actually to be one of the, the more interesting parts of Rock's book. Rock was there. He was on the North American Division nominating committee. They had five candidates to be the next president. Four of them were white, and then there's Bradford. After all four white people either declined to serve 
or were rejected by the committee, some of the delegates said, then let's start over. Let's get a new short list of people that we're considering. The black delegates, including Rock, said, wait a minute here. What about Bradford? He's still on the list. We can't pass him over without either voting him in or, or voting him off the list like we did everybody else. The general conference president who was there at the committee, he had to intervene to remind the delegates that refusing to even consider Bradford would look a little racist to people on the outside. So yeah, then he became president. Rock's history goes on in, in so much more detail than we could cover here. It is a fantastic book. And, and just to speak to non-American or, or, or white American Adventists or, or whoever finds themselves in the same kind of situation I've been in in the past, let me just say this. I found this book so helpful because it forces me to confront an Adventist history which I would not otherwise choose to face. As I said at the beginning of the show, if you just want stories of James and Ellen frolicking through the meadow, singing the sound of music, I can help you find that, okay? There's a lot of books. There's, there's other resources out there that, that take that approach, okay? If you think this giant church should just be effortlessly moved by the Spirit and that there's no place for protest, then I, I genuinely cannot help you there. Okay, the Gentile believers in Acts had to protest the apostles in order to get a seat at the table. They said, hey, 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 we Gentiles are being left behind, presumably because we're Gentiles. And that's not fair. That's discrimination. I mean, you get like whatever it is, like four chapters, four or five chapters into the book of Acts before you have a, a protest for equality happening in the church. If you think there's no place in the church for that, I, I, don't, I don't know how to help you. I mean... Adventists actually call themselves Protestants. They're protesters. Why? Because, because we understand that change isn't served to us. We don't just sit at the table in life and it, and it just comes in a timely manner and is placed before us. Change, valuable, meaningful change, the change that God wants us to experience is always a struggle. But I believe God used and continues to use this struggle to get us where we are which is the most racially diverse church in America. Do we still have problems? Do I want to put a little asterisk after, after giving that statistic so I can explain it? Yes, I do, but I'm not going to do that right now, okay? We still have problems. But before you start talking about how to fix it, may I recommend that you guys pick up protest and progress. I mean, educate yourself, learn the history in greater detail. And if you want to get 5% off the book, hey, Go to universitypress.andrews.edu and enter the code PROTESTAHP. That's universitypress.andrews.edu, and the code is PROTESTAHP. The AHP standing for Adventist History Podcast, okay? PROTESTAHP is the code you want to get 5% off of the book. I'll put a link in the show notes. Look, guys, I don't get a commission on whether you buy this book or not. I love you guys, whether you buy the book or whether you don't buy the book. But if you're into Adventist history, this book is a huge piece of the puzzle that we've been missing for a long time. So I hope you'll at least check it out. But what do we do with the book? I mean, yeah, we're happy to read good history, but what do we do with it? So let me close by giving you two lessons. And there's many, many more, but let me just give you two lessons I took from this book. 
okay? Let me start with E.E. E. Cleveland. He was a, a prominent black leader for many, many decades. He wrote, quote, Black people in our communion have suffered too long at the hands of administrators and members who have misread, misunderstood, and misapplied the writings of our prophet, feeling that she sanctioned their prejudice. The quote's in the book. If Cleveland is right, and Adventists have often misread Ellen on this subject for, for many, many decades, then one result of reading this book will be a newfound understanding of the Adventist prophet. The principle is also at work here, that, that of the ideal and the practical, okay? That, that interplay between we have an ideal, but it's not prudent, it's not practical right now to pursue that ideal, so we got to find a way to, to deal with the situation we're in, okay? That ideal, and then there's the practical. Now, now this kind of matrix, this kind of framework can be applied to other issues too, other situations beyond race relations. And in this way, Adventists might make the very same mistakes with another group, Okay? Diversity is trendy now. Segregation is taboo now. So one could ask, did Adventists really learn, or did social pressures force them to change? Maybe a fresh study of how Ellen White understood the ideal and the practical, maybe that will yield some fruit that will help Adventists to deal with these problems in the future. Now, the, the second lesson I took from this book is the value in allowing minority communities to challenge the majority. At the end of this book, Rock writes, quote, The Word of God contains the seeds of freedom that over time inexorably germinate into protest against unjust social restrictions. It is impossible to be truly affected by the redemptive aspects of Scripture and not long for social as well as spiritual freedom. End quote. Now, the, the more mainstream Adventists become, the closer they will stand to those who have power in society, and the harder it will be for them to hear the cries of those at the margins, those who are being left behind in society. It occurs to me that one measure of a church is how well it is listening to those whom society is ignoring. So, while the majority of the church, for the past whatever, have been focused on the second coming— to the extent that they have and were largely ignoring the world, here is a minority group of Adventists saying, hey, justice matters, social justice matters, fixing stuff down here matters, and, and we can argue today about how best to balance our concern for this world relative to the world to come, okay? But black Adventists in America helped refocus the church's theological priorities. Not that it's wrong to be looking for the second coming. We are Adventists after all, but that our concern for the next world does need to involve some concern for the world which we're in right now. So the church, the church had forgotten that tradition of radical abolition, that tradition of, of social campaign for temperance, that tradition of a political protest against Sunday laws in the 1800s. We'd forgotten that. And when it comes to race, black Adventists were told that the church doesn't get involved in politics. But that black protest has been awakening the church to, to its own history. How far do we go with this? I don't know. But let's at least start a conversation about it. Let's at least look elsewhere to see, see where we can learn our next lesson from. To see what group within the church has something to teach us. 
Now, that's where I want to leave it for this episode, okay? That's it for this episode. I could keep going on and on and on and on, but I've got I've to end it here. I hope you enjoyed it. Let me know on Facebook if you did. Give me a, a, a shout-out, an emoji, a meme. Oh, that'd be fun. We need more Adventist memes. Uh, send me a message. Send me an email, whatever. Don't forget to go check out the book at universitypress.andrews.edu and hit that rewind button if you want to get the promo code again. I love you guys. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again soon.